Uh, it's wonderful to, to see you again. Thank you so much for, for joining with us this morning. And we, we gather again in our uh, series in Philippians. Um, we've had a break from it last week as we, as we had that wonderful service, wasn't it? When, when we had that very public demonstration of, of faith as Joel and Callum and Joel uh, went through the waters of baptism. Uh, and as we gathered around God's word in that service, uh, it was, we, we did discuss how baptism was a, a public sign of a personal transformation. Uh, we thought about how the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts and for all eternity is actually meant to display itself in the here and now. Faith is, is meant to be active. And we recognize the inner reality in which each individual heart, uh, as Jesus forgives sins, yes, that is an individual private thing, but that does not, an individual personal thing, but that does not mean that faith is to be kept private. No, faith in Jesus Christ is to be lived out. It is to be seen and heard by uh, those who fo- uh, in the lives of those who follow him. And, and so for those of us who are Christians, we'll, we'll probably recognize the reality that sometimes um, it, it feels easier to live that out than others. Um, maybe it's dependent on who we're with or, or the surroundings we find ourselves in or, or just the circumstances of life where we feel like we've got so much going on or, and, and how can we effectively show and share the love of Jesus. Well, I wonder if that was true for the Christians who met in Philippi almost 2,000 years ago, the, the Christians who received this letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, would, would they and should they allow their circumstances, their surroundings, their, their political and religious opposition to their faith, should that, would that affect how vehemently they live that out? Would it affect the visibility of their faith? Or, or would they or should they live a bold, active, obedient, united life in Christ in response? And, and I'm imagining you, you can know the answer to that. Uh, we know the right answer to that. We know that, yes, of course, regardless of circumstances, regardless of any opposition that might come our way, regardless of the surroundings we find ourselves in, our call as followers of Jesus is always to, lo- to love him and love his people and love those around us and share the great news of salvation that he brings. But, but we often are buffeted by the situations around us and sometimes our own personal uh, uh, um, our personal showing of that faith can sometimes suffer because we don't have a good enough grasp of the glory of the gospel. Uh, and so we're, we're buffeted by our circumstances rather than held securely by him. Uh, and so just as a recap, we're, we're going to dive back into the end of chapter one of Philippians, uh, where we see the, the wonderful answer to this question. Should Christians live a bold, obedient, faithful life to Jesus? That's the question that Paul is going to answer at the end of chapter 1. But right up to chapter 1, we, we've been enjoying this letter from Paul, who's under house arrest in Rome. He's writing to a church, a group of Christians in Philippi, who he knows and dearly loves. And so far, he's been encouraging them with the joy that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and he's explained how that joy runs deep into the soul. And therefore, that's why, then, the physical circumstances that we face um, doesn't shake the foundation of our joy because our joy isn't found in our true eternal joy isn't found in our circumstances it's found in our lord and savior and therefore because he doesn't change our joy can't change Uh, and so we've tried to summarize that in the title of this series deep roots of a joyful faith and so far we've seen that being unpacked in paul's prayer for the church We've seen his passion to see the gospel spread, whatever is going on. We've seen how he lives his whole life with a joyous confidence 
in the gospel and encourages the church in Philippi to do so. And of course, as God has penned this letter, then he is encouraging us as we read it today to do exactly those things too, to, and to develop that deep roots of a joyful faith in him. And that's the context. So with all of that as a backdrop, that's the context that we're jumping into in verse 27. Paul's train of thought has been on how his, particularly in the, the, in the most recent verses, how his eternal focus has given him purpose, has given him hope in the very present circumstances he finds himself in. Therefore, whatever happens, as we read last time we were in this book, if he dies in prison or if he has many years left to serve Christ, his life is going to be marked by his joy in the Lord and his passion for the gospel. And that's what's going to come through again as we see uh, him continuing at the end of chapter 1. So let's read uh, verse 27 through to verse 30 in Philippians chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to you and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would speak powerfully to us through it. May your words ring true in our hearts. May your spirit transform our lives. And for your glory we pray. Amen. So, these incredible words that we read at the end of this chapter, I would love to unpack them just with, with three great truths that are here. And all showing us how, how we as followers of Jesus today can, can live a gospel-worthy life. And so here we are trying to think about what it means to live this gospel-worthy life. I think we see these three things here, that there is gospel-worthy conduct, there is gospel-worthy unity, and gospel-worthy suffering. That is what Paul is encouraging the church here, and I believe that is what God is encouraging us to do as his people today. So firstly, gospel-worthy conduct. Verse 27 starts with, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens. Now, now we may read that and think that that's just a, a passing phrase as Paul is getting from one train of thought to another. No, no, no. It, it's much deeper than that. That Paul is writing from house arrest to a group of Christians who are facing difficulty and opposition for the faith that they're professing. He's just been talking about death and eternity and that eternity which is secure for him in Christ. So whatever happens is not just a skipping on through. No, it's whatever happens. This has profound significance. Whether you are supported or opposed, whether you are accepted or rejected, whether you're seeing gospel fruit or you're experiencing gospel suffering, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, whatever happens, again, we see Paul's complete focus on the, the necessity of the gospel and the impact of the gospel. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel because the gospel is the primary thing. It is the message that the whole world needs to hear. So whatever happens, make sure the gospel is getting out. And the impact of the gospel is important because it impacts our lives. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of it. Let your lifestyle be marked by the gospel. 
So Paul's complete focus, we've seen it throughout chapter 1, on the gospel. And what we see now is, when it comes to how we live our lives, the only thing that matters is living in a way that is worthy of the gospel, which of course has been the means to which we know salvation. It is the only thing that matters. In fact, the ESV rendering of this verse puts it like that. Only, it begins with, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever else is going on, whatever else is happening, only let solely, let your whole focus be on living in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And so Paul's really wanting to drive this reality home. And therefore God has preserved this message for us to show us the need for us to hear this to pay attention to this, to ask deep and searching questions like, like how consistently are we living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we, as I said at the beginning, are we buffeted by our circumstances? Do we ebb and flow in our faithfulness to Jesus? And those are difficult questions. Those are searching questions. Those Those are questions which God invites us to come to him with. They are not questions to induce unnecessary shame that, 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 that drive us further into ourselves and retreat even further. No, they are questions that drive us to our Lord to bring us and plead for his help to live the life worthy of the gospel. But the challenge that God is bringing to us here, I think, is to value the gospel so highly in our lives that our conduct is consistent with it. That we value the gospel. You see, it's about a life worthy of the gospel. And so the verse goes on, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. And that, that, that term, conduct yourselves, it's actually, the, the, the translation of it implies this idea of, of living as a citizen, of, of representing that nation. Conduct yourselves in a way that represents that well. Conduct yourselves, live as a citizen of the one who believes the gospel is worthy. And in the context that Paul's writing into here, where he's encouraging a group of Christians who are living in a profoundly proud Roman colony inside what is now Greece, citizenship mattered to the Philippian people because they were, they, they were unique, that they could say that they were a Roman colony inside, uh, inside an area that wasn't. And Paul is saying to them here, remember your true citizenship. It's not about living your life as a citizen of Rome. No, it's about living your life as a citizen of your heavenly home, where your true identity is, and therefore living in a way that represents the values and the priorities and the lifestyle of heaven, the values, priorities, and lifestyles of God. And it's clear from this letter, indeed, throughout the New Testament, throughout all of Scripture, that that the behavior and the lifestyle of God's people matters to God. Because it says a great deal about the worth that we give to him. We can see this in other aspects of life, can't we? That that how someone's life, how someone's actions demonstrates their values. So, So on a very simple level, imagine if you're trying to buy a car from somebody. And they're explaining how this brand of car is the greatest brand of car. This is, this is the one that you have to buy. But if you find out that they drive something different, that's not going to mean anything. Because what they're saying and how they're living doesn't match up with what they truly value. If they truly valued that thing, they would drive one. Or maybe be given one because it's their job. But the, 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 the reality is we can see the disconnect. 
between what they say they value and how they're living. Or maybe think about it in this way. Maybe you could consider, consider a marriage that you know to be really healthy and thriving. You know, a, a marriage that you watch it and it just brings you joy. Well, well, one of the things that often demonstrates health in a marriage in that way is, is how one spouse shows the worth they hold their spouse in. How they, how they speak of, how they talk about their wives or husbands. The, the things they do, the kindness they show, that, that all of that speaks to us. We look at their lives and see, goodness, they value their spouse. They are living in a way worthy of the love that they have for their spouse. You can tell by how they live that they deeply value that person. And it's that kind of concept that Paul's alluding to here, I think. That the conduct of the Christian demonstrates the value that they place, the worth that they place on the gospel. If the gospel is supremely important to us, like it seems to be in the life of Paul, that will be evident in the way that life is lived. If the gospel is fairly far down the pecking order of what we think is valuable in this life, then that will demonstrate itself too. But God's message to us is whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Actively, decisively, purposefully live your life in a way that reflects the worth that you place on the gospel. Well, that, that may sound all well and good, but, but what does that actually look like? What, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, God shows us through his word, and particularly in, in lots of Paul's letters, we see uh, an implication of this. I just want to read one. Um, it's a little bit of a lengthy example, but it shows us what a life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. It's from a passage in Colossians chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first 17 verses. Um, and just watch out for how the life of the, of the follower of Jesus is marked by his love and visibly demonstrated to the world around. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves also of, these, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgive you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with, wis with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this life that has been transformed by God's grace is just that, transformed. Life is a, a, before we come to know Jesus is going one way. That's described for us very clearly in Colossians 3. But as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we are transformed by his grace. And, and our desires and our values are now not on our world and what we wish. No, they're on our heavenly home. And so we live differently. We conduct ourselves differently. We conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, we display gospel-worthy conduct. Gospel-worthy conduct. The second thing we, we see in this passage is around the gospel-worthy unity, which Paul explains here at the end of verse 27. Gospel-worthy unity. Paul goes on, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Well, as we think about unity, one of the things that we need to see firstly here is that it is the gospel that unites. It is the gospel that unites God's people. It's the gospel that has united them and standing and striving for the gospel will keep them united. And I feel like we've said this a lot recently, but the gospel is good news. The gospel is great news. It saves each and every person who, who repents of their sin, who turns to Christ for salvation, committing to follow him. That is good news. And it is good news for each and every individual who responds in that way. And in responding in that way, God draws us into his family his eternal family, and we are united together deeply because we are united together in Christ. And as we strive for the unity, that we strive for unity in that gospel. See, we're to actively and decisively promote that unity. Isn't that what Paul says here? Stand firm in one spirit, striving together. And even the, the ESV even puts this slightly more uh, differently or slightly differently when it, it gives the picture of, of soldiers standing, going into battle together with the way that it renders this verse. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, side by side, together for the gospel. You get the idea, don't you? That, that, that God's people are to be united. United together. It's a great picture of, the, of what the church is to be. But maybe you're wondering, is that realistic? It sounds great. But, but have you looked around? There's some people here who do my head in. There's some people who think very differently than me. There's some people here who, who I don't agree on every aspect of, 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 um, of life with. Is it possible to remain this united when the church, God's family, is so gloriously diverse and so people are so individually quirky. Well, yes, it is possible to remain this united because it is the gospel that unites us. It is not our personal styles. It is not our, our music preferences. It's not the way we dress to come to church. That's not what unites us. We are united around the fact that we are saved and by faith alone, because of grace alone, in Christ alone. 
That, that is why, we, that is how God's people are united. Therefore, when it is that gospel, the truth of God's word that unites us, when that is our focus, then we can re- remain united. Paul and, and other New Testament writers, even Jesus himself, they, they weren't naive enough to, to ignore the pressures and struggles that will come within a church community. The Bible has much to say about how to deal with conflict, how to deal with difference, how to love one another, how to be humble together, how to forgive one another. All of that is true. The Bible doesn't paint this rosy, unattainable picture of, of, of the church. However, what it does say is a constant call to strive for unity, to stand firm side by side together, united in the gospel, united, bound together in Christ. We'll come to see this in, in, in glorious technicolor when we get into chapter 2 in a few weeks. But the message is clear. When, when the gospel is the main thing, then unity can be preserved around that gospel. It is the truth of who Christ is, of what he's done, of the, the, his victory over sin, his eternal reign as Lord and King. That, that, that unites his people. And that unity that we share is not simply to be theoretical or intellectual. It's to be, it's to be felt. It's to be experienced. That unity leads to an expression of, of love, of deep love. Jesus, in, his, uh, in one of his final uh, sessions with his disciples in John 13, says these wonderful words. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, love for one another is not an optional extra for Christians. It's a command of Jesus. Love one another. And the wonderful thing is, by doing that, everyone will know that we are his disciples. The the way in which we love our brothers and sisters in Christ is a demonstration to the world that watches on of the greater love that Christ has for all of us. And so this unity expresses itself in a way that draws others in. So can I encourage us to strive for unity here? Doesn't mean uniformity. Doesn't mean we're all going to be the same as each other. But let's nurture that unity. Let's let's deal with difference and diversity of opinion well here, graciously, humbly, but united in the gospel, united in Christ. And and therefore we're displaying this gospel-worthy unity that speaks to the world that watches on about how great our God is. The third thing that we're going to look at finally is is gospel-worthy suffering. And that might even sound like a strange phrase, but it is very clear throughout the whole of Philippians, indeed throughout all of Scripture, that God's people uh, will endure suffering. And, And the reality of suffering is made clear for us even in verse 28. So the reality of suffering we can see. As Paul picks up that that line of thinking, standing firm, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See, there there will be opponents to the gospel. Some people think that these opponents that Paul is dealing with here are from other religious groups. Some people think it's from outside. I I, I think it could be both and. That when, when people are living faithfully for Jesus, there will be opposition. There will be those who who don't want to see the gospel spread. 
And so we should expect that opposition. Jesus promised that his followers would experience it. And so we should expect it and, and know that it's coming. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But it is interesting, isn't it? And we'll come back to think about this in a minute, that we do so without being frightened in any way. We'll come back to think about how that's possible in a second. So we see the reality of suffering. Yes, of course, it will come. And really interestingly then, in verse 29, I wonder, did you pick this up as we read it? In talking about suffering, Paul says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. See, the, the reality that suffering has been granted. It's not an interesting concept. Some of us think suffering is to be endured. And of course it has to be. But the reality that suffering has been granted to us as followers of Christ, because the Bible is clear that suffering is a way in which our faith is, is purified, a way in which we can be sanctified, a way in which we can participate in the sufferings with Christ. So in, in a way that's completely counter to how we would normally think about it, suffering for the gospel is a grace of God. It is a gift of God. Can that be right? Well, I believe it is right. I believe that is what scripture teaches, that if we are suffering for him, then we are, we are united with him in his suffering. First Peter talks about that, that we are participants with him in his suffering. But more than that, I think the reality and Paul's language here, that it has been granted to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer. That gives us great comfort to know that, that God is sovereignly in control. That nothing is surprising God. Nothing's taken him off guard. He hasn't dropped the ball. He hasn't lost control. No, the suffering that might be coming our way for the gospel is, is, is under his sovereign care. And therefore, we can know incredible comfort that he is with us in it, that he has endured even greater, that our home with him is secure. And so we can endure, we can get through suffering, not because we're strong enough in ourselves, no, because the Spirit empowers us and because we know our Savior has gone through much worse than we have and we will. And ultimately, our home is eternal and secure. That's why Paul was able to say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so suffering, of course, can be endured for the gospel as we think on it. But as, as I said, suffering is, is, is a reality for the followers of Jesus. So how should we respond then? How do we respond in a gospel-worthy way? Well, I do think that we have an opportunity here, and Paul picks up on it in verse 28, to respond in a way that displays the gospel. So we're suffering for the gospel, and we can respond in a way that further displays the gospel. Did you see that in verse 28? Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them, so not being frightened by their opposition and living a faithful life after the gospel, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. You see, it is possible for us, it is good for us to respond in a way that shows that we cannot be shaken because we stand on truth. And so whatever opposition comes our way, if we are, if we, because we are not shaken, then it shows that we are standing on truth. It is a, a way of confirming that we truly believe what we say we believe. That we have gospel-worthy suffering. And I realize that isn't comfortable to hear. Talking about suffering isn't enjoyable. Nobody wants to invite suffering on themselves. However, if it's suffering for the gospel of Christ, then it is worth it. Perhaps we don't think that we're suffering as much 
or suffering that much, and certainly not in comparison to the church in Philippi. Or, or maybe as Paul, as he writes under arrest here, or compared to millions of our brothers and sisters who suffer in much more tangible ways than we might be today. But we do know forms of suffering. Maybe you know those, those, that feeling of isolation, of ostracization in, in social settings. Or the, the jokes around the office that are made at our expense. Or the disgusted looks that we maybe get from family members when we're discussing contentious issues. And so we know what it's like to face suffering for what we stand for. And so my prayer is that we take courage from God's word this morning. Not just to, not just to realize that suffering should be expected as faithful followers of Christ. But that we can do that and we can face it without fear. Because and in doing so without fear, the way we respond without fear actually demonstrates the, the gospel that we stand upon to the ones who are very opposing us. And so suffering can come. And how do we respond without fear? Well, we, we respond without fear knowing that our response actually displays the gospel. And the second thing, as I said, is to know that suffering is granted to us. And we've said enough about that already. To know that suffering is granted, we can therefore expect it. We can therefore display the gospel through it. And we can therefore know that God is still sovereignly with us in it. So we we know that suffering is coming. And to live and respond in a gospel-worthy way means that we trust God through it. And we remain faithful to our witness to him in the midst of it. I found um, one commentator, uh, one commentator's conclusions very insightful here. And I know I don't quote lots of people lots of times. I find this very helpful for me personally. So I wanted to share it with you this morning just as we come to a close. As we think about the reality of, of, of suffering for the gospel and how we can live faithfully. Uh, Stephen Lawson wrote these words. What Paul wrote to the church in Philippi has come down through the centuries to us. The only differences are the name of the church where you worship and the city in which you live. However, the message is the same. Nothing has changed. Paul says to all believers everywhere that living for the gospel necessitates suffering for the gospel. Salvation and suffering cannot be divorced. And we must not live our lives as though the Bible's teaching on this does not apply to us in our age or society. We are not to be needlessly offensive, but we are to speak and live out the truth in love. As we do, we must understand that there will always be a price to pay in proclaiming the message. The gospel is good news, but it is never easy news. It is a demanding call to repentance and faith that requires a full sacrifice from each one of us. But it is worth the sacrifice we make because it is the gospel that saves. And it is a redeemed life that advances the gospel into the world. find some of those thoughts helpful as, as we wrestle with how we can live out gospel-worthy suffering in the world that we live in. Paul knew what it was to suffer. That's why he's able to say at the very end there, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. Remember these Philippians, many of them would have seen Paul being dragged into jail in Philippi. It's recorded for us in Acts 16. Since that imprisonment and the one he's currently writing to this letter from, Paul has faced opposition, he's faced beatings, he's faced riots, he's faced trials. Paul knows what it is to suffer for for Christ. Yet in view of all that, he implored the Philippian church and God today continues to implore his people to live a gospel-worthy life, which means we live gospel-worthy conduct, 
gospel-worthy unity together and we go through suffering in a gospel-worthy way. And so God's continued to show us that we need to do the same because the gospel is still good news. The gospel is still the best news. And so to live your life worthy of anything, it's got to be the gospel. There's nothing greater than the gospel to devote your life to. And so may God continue to grant us the deep roots of joyful faith that lives in this gospel-worthy way. May he indeed help us. Because don't we need his help? Let's pray to him. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have saved many of us. For those of us who know and, and trust you as our Lord and Savior, thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. Thank you for offering forgiveness and grace as we have turned and repented of our sin and turned to you. Lord, thank you. We praise you this morning for the gospel. It is indeed worthy of our whole lives. And so for many of us this morning, Father, maybe we need to to recommit and lay ourselves down before you again to say thank you. And in response to your lavish grace, we give you all of ourselves. May we indeed live in a way and conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we long that your gospel is made known to those that we know and love, to those we live around, indeed to the ends of the world. And so we pray that you would help us. Father, forgive us for the times when we have been bogged down in our own sin. Forgive us when we've been bogged down by our own um, our own lack of, of faith and assurance and, and, and confidence that you are with us, the God of all the universe is with us, and we have shied away from sharing our faith. Lord, thank you that you continue to give us opportunities to do so. Continue to give us opportunities to show the love of Jesus and to share the wonderful good news message of Jesus. Would you embolden us, we pray, so that we could say, whatever happens, whether that result is going to be a welcome embrace or not. I pray that you would give us the the clarity, the boldness, the the joy in in the faith that you have given us to faithfully live and witness for you, we pray. Lord, we recognize that, that we live in a, in a day and age, as your people have always done, where the gospel and your truth is not recognized and not lived by, indeed it is maligned. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us to live our lives in, in gracious ways, to live our lives founded on your truth, to live our lives standing and striving together uh, for the defense of the gospel. Help us, God. Uh, help, help us to live um, that gospel-worthy way where our, our roots are so deep in you that whether um, in, in times of plenty or need, we can know a contentment and a joy in you. And even by the way we, we interact and deal with those who oppose us, Father, may that be a sign to them of their need for you. Thank you that you've given us this great truth. Thank you that you've opened up the way for salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can know sins forgiven. We can know life in its fullness and life for all eternity with you. Lord, would you help our lives to be so devoted to you, our hearts to be so captivated by you, that we live this in every moment of our day. We know, Father, 
that in our own strength we can't do this. And so would your spirit empower us, we pray. Be glorified, we ask. It's in your name and for that glory that we pray. Amen.